You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change. Like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. P please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ. Thank you for joining me again this week as we take you through the latest news, analysis and game action surrounding our Chicago Bulls. We've got another two games since we last spoke and unfortunately for the Bulls it's been another two losses. Going down by one point against the Spurs on Monday night and losing tonight against the Bucks by three points. So that's two games this week against two good teams which have been decided on the last possession in the game and the Bulls have fallen short twice here which depending on where you stand in the scheme of things and what you believe this season is truly about I guess it could be painted as either a good or bad outcome but for me right now considering how the last game against the Bucks went down this four quarter performance where the Bulls hung in with the best team in the East for the entire game has me kind of upbeat. And joining me today to discuss this game and more is writer for The Athletic, Stefan No. Stefan, how are you, mate? I'm doing great, man. I was expecting to be uh, struggling for things to talk about on this podcast with you after you asked me to come on after the Bucks game, after uh, the debacle the first time these guys played. But this was like one of the best games of the year. It was super entertaining. So I'm I'm happy to be able to discuss this with you. Well, it's funny because I had a, an outline of things I wanted to talk to you about and look after that Spurs game, I was I was completing my outline for this show and it was fairly negative, I'll, I'll put it that way. And on the fly during the game, I had to sort of rewrite what, what I wanted to discuss with you because it turned out to be one of the better games of the season and kind of odd to say that given that the Bulls have lost another game there on the final possession. But considering all the injuries and how bad things have been at, in some of these games, particularly some of these blowouts in the last sort of week or two, more so two weeks ago, it was actually a pretty good four-quarter performance, an actual complete game. The Bulls were in it right until the end there, obviously losing pretty much on the final possession. But I want to talk about this game because, like you said, it was a surprisingly good one and there was a lot to take out of this one. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the Bucks have been struggling recently. They just lost to, they lost to the Suns and the Hornets, right? But, I mean, they're still one of the, the best teams in the East, so... I think the point spread was like 15 coming into this game. It was not supposed to be close at all. So for the Bulls to keep it to within three, it was 116 to 113. That's that's uh, pretty good. It is pretty good. And, and I mean, they're able to do that because they got some, like, some really good performances out of players we didn't necessarily expect. And, and one guy I'm referencing here is, is Robin Lopez, who came off the bench, played 23 minutes, had 17 points off the bench. So he was huge in this game. But... After scoring 22 against the Spurs, Ryan Archidiakono followed that up with another 22 points here against the Bucks. So he had 22 points, Zach Levine had 24 points, and Jabari Parker had 24 too. So the Bulls had three players with above 20 points uh, 20 points in this game. Robin Lopez just behind with his 17. So 
There was a lot of good performances to take out of this game, and I want to start with my man, Brian Archidiakono, who, after that Spurs game, that was pretty much a career night for him. I thought he'd just sort of pull one out of the bag here, but (laughs) one game later, he's out here uh, scoring 22 points, having five rebounds, four assists, five steals, doing all the gritty stuff that I love about him. And he just followed up a a career night with pretty much an even better game. That was very generous of you to lead with Robin Lopez. I mean, I think all of your <laughs> listeners do that. You're immediately going to bring it to Ryan Archidiakono, but definitely the story of the game. Uh, I cannot believe how good this guy is playing. I mean, uh, five steals? That is just crazy. Uh, 22 points, as you mentioned. I mean, he was. I, I think he was the best player on the court for the Bulls, which is just totally crazy to say. Oh, look, I'm not going to disagree with you in that regard. I'm pretty happy with you to say that. But, uh, I mean, he, he was he was great. I thought he was fantastic. And he, it, it kind of dawned on me in this game, actually, for whatever reason. I'm not sure why I haven't necessarily thought of this before. But he's one of the few two-way players the Bulls actually have on this roster, which is kind of a crazy thing to say, given where Archie Diakono has sort of come from. I I don't know if I would really call him a two-way player. I mean, come he, on, yeah, I, I, I know you, I know you haven't been uh, full of praise for the guy over the journey. I'm just trying to squeeze something out of here. Surely he's a two-way player at this point, Stefan. Uh, well, I mean, so he scored. Uh, he was five of nine from three. That's where he got most of his points, and that's where he's yeah. really scored a ton of points uh, so far this year. He had like a fast break layup where he just looked uh, really overwhelmed and. <laughs> <laughs> didn't really hit the rim, but yeah, okay. Like we we I can say he's a two-way. I mean, anytime you score twenty-two points, right, you're contributing on offense. So if he can still, if he can keep on shooting like close to fifty percent on threes, I mean, certainly he brings a lot of value on that end. So I mean, you really can't speak badly of the guy after a performance like this. You definitely can't. And uh, look, I'm obviously wrapped to see him playing this well, considering where he's come from. We're not that, we're only twelve months removed, basically, from him coming up out of the G League and almost, well, not almost, not looking like an NBA player. And here he is now starting for the Bulls in place of Chris Dunn. And he's playing some damn good basketball, something that I don't think any of us really saw coming. So credit to Archie Diakono, who was great in this game, again, following up from that Spurs game. And I also want to give Zach Levine a bit of a shout out, who after that Spurs game as well, and considering how things ended for him and the team, I guess, generally on that last possession, I thought he had a pretty good uh, bounce back game too. Yeah, I really liked his playmaking too. You know, he he said that he didn't want to pass out on that last shot against the Spurs. He had seven assists in this one, though, only one turnover. His assist to turnover ratio has been pretty bad this season. So seven to one, that's awesome for him. And of course, like he's bringing the offense as per usual. Uh, He's only two of six on three, but those two threes he hit were incredibly tough shots, uh, which we know like that's what he does, right? I mean, he's a really good tough shot maker, so... Yeah, I thought it was a really strong performance from him. And Jabari Parker, I mean, we got to give that guy some credit too. I think both of us have been pretty tough on him uh, in the first couple weeks of the season. But this is like his fifth straight game now where he's strung together a really nice offensive performance. He had 24 points in this one. So I think he might actually be starting to turn a corner here offensively, at least for the Bulls. Which is tough for me to admit because pretty much before he started all this, I pretty much had a post up there on Bloggable saying that this whole thing has failed and it's been a disaster. And since then, he's come out and played pretty well. So uh, I've got to take that one on the chin, I guess. But I'm willing to accept that if he plays this well for, for the remainder of the season. But just getting back to Levine, I, I thought it was an important game because uh, as I sort of alluded to before, I had a 
an outline planned where it was going to be fairly negative coming off that Spurs game. I assume the Bulls are going to get blown out here by the Bucks, but that last possession against the Spurs where he opted to sort of close the game with that three-point shot that instead of going to the basket, that was really concerning. And I think his response after the game as well was kind of troubling as well. But in this game here against the Bucks, it was a bit of a, a redemption game for Levine because pretty much with 30 seconds to go, he tied up the game by getting to the basket and, and making that uh, the two-point conversion that it tied everything up at 113 apiece there with 30 seconds to play. So what did you make of Levine's, I guess, his bad shot against the Spurs? Let's, let's go there first. But then how he handled it after the Spurs game and then how he sort of was able to redeem himself on that final drive there and um, putting the ball in the basket there against the Bucks there, which tied it up pretty late there in the game. Well, after the Spurs game, his comments where he said that he waved off Wendell Carter coming up for a screen because he didn't want a double to come. If the double came, he would have probably had to pass the ball off if he was not able to split it. I mean, I thought that showed that he lacks a lot of trust in his teammates to make plays behind him. I mean, you want to attract a double team. You want your teammates to have that advantage. Um, so it should be a good thing. But he was like actively trying to avoid it to the point where he took like a really terrible fadeaway three-pointer when they were only down by one point. So I thought that he really changed things up in this game. He had an amazing pass in the last two or three minutes to Jabari Parker where Again, like he he drew the entire defense, passed it off to Parker, and he dunked it and did like a push up on the rim. That was just an awesome play to see. And then you talked about that uh, layup he had with, I think it was under a minute to go. That was a great, great ATO by yeah. Fred Hoiberg. He's gotten yeah. a lot of crap from fans for not being able to drop key plays in those types of situations. I actually think he's been okay at that. And I think like last year he was one of the top five coaches in um, points per possession out of ATOs. So that was a that was a really clever play design. Um, got Levine the open lane where he could hit a reverse layup. And yeah, I I thought that just so many big performances from this team, but Levine was definitely uh, one of the biggest ones. Yeah, he was. I thought he was he was really good. And considering you know, like I said before, how that how that Spurs game ended, I thought this was as pretty much as as good as what you would have expected from a bounce back type game. And like you sort of alluded to there, his pass to or his turnover to assist ratio was probably as good as what we could hope as well. Seven assists, one turnover. That's a pretty good outcome from Levine, and he shot the ball pretty well as well tonight as well. Eight from eighteen from the field. So you'll take that sort of game considering how things played out for him against that Spurs game, but. Again, after this game, I was sort of reflecting and I was wondering, are we too harsh in the moment or too critical in the moment on these sorts of guys? And, and what I mean by that is a couple of things. So one, are we are we too harsh on someone like Zach Levine who has a history of poor decision-making and just assuming that's what he is going forward? I, I know that's sort of the rhetoric after that Spurs game that he's not necessarily, and I'm not necessarily saying this is what you thought, but... There was uh there was talk about Zach Levine being a poor decision maker and we saw that in the, at the the close of that Spurs game and hence why he sort of settled for that three pointer. But are we too quick to sort of get on these guys considering, you know, basketball or in the NBA at least, it's an eighty two game season. You know, one or two nights later these guys have got a chance to get back in there and, and make a I I like I said, redeem themselves. I don't really think so. I mean Levine has definitely been a lot better this year, but I was never really that high on him. Um, just based on even like in that last year uh, with the Timberwolves, where he's averaging a lot of points. I mean, 
Um, I know a lot of people are not fans of RPM, and he's always rated really lowly in that stat, though. I, I think that his overall impact on the game, you know, he can score a lot of points. He's still scoring a lot of points this year, but even this year, like, he's not really shooting the ball that efficiently. Um, and then on, on the other aspects of the game, like his his playmaking, it was good tonight, but he has turned the ball over a ton. His defense still is not very good. So I think that with a guy like him, like he's just not very consistent. He has these games like the one tonight against the Bucks, where he was really, really good. And you see these flashes and you think like, man, this guy could be, you know, an all-star one day, but he's just not at that level yet where he's uh, consistently, you know, one of the top players in the league. No, definitely. I, I certainly agree with that. And I wouldn't wouldn't argue that. But I, I guess my point is, after that game, and look, I crushed him for it as well, but he took that bad three. But then I, I sort of, again, like I said, I was reflecting about things. And I, the day before, I was pretty hyped about Jimmy Butler making that three for the Sixers. That, and that, look, in hindsight, that was a terrible three from Butler as well in terms of, in terms of thinking about the process of the shot that he sort of took. But in the sense that it was pretty similar to the one Levine took in the sense that he took a, a three on the last possession there. Ultimately, it's a make or miss league in, in that sense. So Levine missed, but Jimmy made it. And we just sort of celebrate these two performances a little bit differently. So I guess that's more what I'm talking about. The fact that just game to game, we can sort of crush these guys pretty hard. But it all ultimately comes down to the result of the ball going through. And I, I just wonder if a Levine had made that three event against the Spurs... Would we be talking about this completely differently? I think that uh, the general narrative would definitely change. And that's what Levine was saying after the game, too. He was saying he thought it was a good shot. He's made that shot before. And if it goes in, then everybody's saying it's a good shot. And I mean, I think that's true to some extent. Like the fan criticism would definitely be a lot less. But yeah, you're right. Those shots that Butler made, like those are terrible shots, too. Like just because they went in. I mean, when I saw him make it, I thought like, it was incredibly impressive that he was able to make those difficult shots. But Butler used to do that in Chicago too. And he used to drive me crazy that he would take these like long fadeaway twos for game winners. And, you know, he was pretty good at them, but he's also amazing at getting to the rim and drawing fouls in those situations. So I think that you can't really, I mean, if you're a fan and you're just trying to watch the games for enjoyment, that's fine. You can like get pumped up when those guys take those shots. But if you're like a coach or if you're a player, you really have to be process-oriented. You can't be results-oriented. And in those situations when Levine finds himself in those positions in the future, I mean, he really just has to drive the ball because he has such an advantage over most guys and just blowing right past them. Especially like DeMar DeRozan. He's like not a very good defender. Like He should have just gone right by him. Yeah, that's certainly true. Look, I'm certainly not defending the fact that he did take that three, but it's just an interesting one. Like, Oh, like I said, it's a make or miss league and, and the perception around things can really change based on if the shot goes through the hoop or not. But ultimately, it was effectively the same play. But look, I was much, much more happier with the way Levine played tonight against the Bucks compared to what he did against the Spurs. But at the same time, he does have a lot of pressure on his shoulder given the, uh, the lack of support that he typically does have. But that wasn't the case tonight against the Bucks. Like we mentioned before, he had a lot of support. Uh, in, in this one and, and I guess one of the, the the key pieces off the bench in this game was Robin Lopez as I alluded to here and that was due to the fact that Wendell Carter Jr. fouled out again and it just seems like every other game at this point Carter Jr. is fouling out or he's running the the gambit there in terms of fouls hitting up four or five fouls pretty quickly and not really getting many minutes in this game so what have you made about 
Carter's sort of struggles here and his propensity to really pick up some quick fouls, do you think it's mostly justified in terms of the calls that have been sort of labeled against him and what the refs are calling against him? Or do you think um, do you think he's getting hosed a little bit here? He's definitely gotten some bad calls. There's a call against the Suns where he got whistled against Devin Booker. The replay showed he clearly didn't even touch him. There's another one. I can't remember. It was the next game, whoever they played, where the guy like hooked his arm on Carter and just fell into him, and he got called for that foul. But a lot of the fouls he gets called for, too, are these touch fouls on the perimeter that are... Uh, those are like a point of emphasis this year, these freedom of movement rules where you're not allowed to put your forearm on a guy. Uh, you're not allowed to grab anymore when they're cutting through the lane and stuff like that. And I think the Bulls coaching staff really did not prepare the team at all for these new calls. I mean, I think they thought that like they just weren't going to get called in the the real games. And you look at a team like uh, I, I saw this interview with Nick Nurse, who coaches the Raptors. He brought the refs in during training camp to specifically tell the players like hey this is this is what you can and cannot do anymore and we are definitely going to call these in games and you know the bulls the the thing i hate about watching this bulls team the most is they just argue about the calls constantly and it goes from the coaches to the players i mean stacy king has brought this up on a lot of the broadcasts how these guys like they talk too much to the rest i mean they don't get back on defense and you just have to play through that stuff so um, you know, maybe Carter has gotten a couple bad calls, but I mean, luckily, like Carter is not really one of these guys who is staying back and complaining to the refs, but he he has to learn these uh, new touch foul rules because a lot of them are not shooting fouls. They're just fouls on the ground. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're definitely right. And, and they're, they're mostly body up sort of fouls. So I guess that's the frustrating thing as a fan as well. And for this team right now, there's not a lot to cheer for or root for. Uh, and maybe not necessarily in this game because this was probably one of the better games they've played, but in the games where Zach Levine hasn't going on, we're pretty much only watching at this point for Wendell Carter Jr.'s development. And in the games where he's sort of fouling out or, or not playing many minutes due to foul limitations, it's it's rough seeing him out there, one, picking up the fouls that he has been doing, which some of them have certainly been justified, but two, some of these calls as well that he has been getting, I think have been a little bit rough and it is, it, they are rookie calls to me. But Hopefully with uh, Larry Marketing, but coming back pretty soon, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that'll give us another reason to, uh, I guess, get be or stay more in tune in these Bulls games. But credit to Robin Lopez, who came off the bench and had a pretty timely performance, 17 points, five rebounds, as I mentioned before, and definitely outplayed his brother tonight, which was uh, a timely performance by the Bulls' backup center. What I find amazing is that Fred Hoiberg, who is supposed to be this modern pace and space, all three-pointers coach, he's calling ATOs specifically for Robin Lopez to get him hook shots, and those shots are going in. So I think that's a testament to both Lopez and Hoiberg, Hoiberg, and that he's able to adapt to whatever talent he has out there. You know, Lopez might be the best offensive player in some of these bench units. And then Lopez, too, for, I mean, he's like going through two and three guys sometimes in the post to get these shots off. And he's shown ever since he's come to Chicago that he's able to hit those. So uh, great performance, yeah, from him. And I think that, you know, he probably should have been playing above Felicio this entire time. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair. And look, I, I thought it was a good move initially by Hoiberg to put Felicio into the rotation again. But he, uh, uh, look, it was probably justified at the time, but I think the quick hook Felicio got in the end as well and putting Lopez back into it probably made sense too. But you raised the point there about the bench unit being pretty bad offensively in the fact that the Bulls sometimes need to go to Robin Lopez to get him these sort of hook shots that he sort of takes from his waist almost. 
But it seemed Hoiberg tightened up his rotation in this game, only playing four guys off the bench, one of those being Lopez, the other three being Shaq Harrison, Chandler Hutchison, and Cameron Payne. So no Antonio Blakeney tonight. So that was an adjustment from Hoiberg. No Blakeney at the backup three, which I definitely appreciated. I'm not sure how you feel about Blakeney, but what did you make about some of these uh, rotational changes that we saw from Hoiberg in this game? Well, I mean, yeah, Blakeney's been pretty bad here. Uh, The Bulls bench has been really bad. It lost them the game against the Spurs. I think all the starters had a positive plus minus in that one, and all the bench players had like a huge negative. Uh, Same thing in this Bucks game. I'm looking at it now, and all the starters had a plus minus of between plus two and plus seven, and then all the bench players had a negative of minus five and then uh cameron pay and everybody's favorite whipping boy is a minus 16 team worst minus 16 so they're not getting anything from the bench i think one thing that uh bothers me about these rotations is hoiberg hasn't really done a great job of staggering levine and parker that's definitely something that i would do because the bench has such poor shot creation i think that if you had parker out there i mean he could really create at least something for himself or some other teammate usually they'll uh hoiberg will start the second quarter and end the first quarter with these um all bench units where he'll have justin holiday stay in there and he's the only guy and holiday's not a shot creator so that doesn't really make sense for me he's done that the past two games it's something that i would like to see change yeah it's an interesting one and to that point i would like to see levine come out a little bit earlier and almost play the full second quarter and to the, to the exact point why you raised there, because that second unit is just so bereft of offensive talent that if you're not having Parker or Levine out there, it's going to be just, you know, complete terrible basketball to watch. But I think Levine in that gunner role with that second unit and then merging back into that first unit as the rest of the guys sort of come in during that second quarter or even the fourth quarter, I think that's what I'd like to see more of from Hoiberg going forward. And maybe that's the adjustment once he starts getting Portis, Markin and Dunn back and those sorts of guys. Maybe that will be the adjustment, but of course, the rotation should be bolstered at that point once those guys come back anyway. So it'll be interesting to see how he manages all that uh, once he has all these players coming back. But he did sort of play around with a lineup that I don't think we've seen before tonight, uh, or at least before tonight. I could be wrong, but he at one point there, he was running with Payne, Archie Diakono, Levine, and Holiday as his uh, point guard, shooting guard, small forward, and power forward with one of Lopez or Wendell Carter Jr. at center. So I'm pretty sure that's a look we haven't necessarily seen before. One, because he was tightening the rotation up. And two, because Jabari Parker, he was also in foul trouble tonight. He had the five fouls in this one too. I mean, with some of these lineups, like I don't even know if they're tanking or not. Like They're just so weird. <laughs> so yeah, that was I, he loves playing these two and three point guard lineups where it's like, I don't even know what you're doing. Like, he doesn't even play these point guards as the point guard. Like, he'll play Archidiakono as the two and, like, Blakeney as the three or Payne as the three. And then he'll just have Zach Levine play point. It's like, what? what is the point there? I don't really get it. Yeah, look, I... I guess, but at the same time, I want to defend him because his bench is pretty much just made up of point guards and centers. Like, he almost doesn't have an in-between apart from Antonio Blakely, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. He definitely has his hands tied there but that's another reason why he should just always have one of parker levine out there yeah yeah that's that's definitely true so look like i said before this was a pretty good performance from the bulls i'm happy that i'm not happy that they necessarily lost but considering that they played a full four quarter performance i'll take this l unfortunately they lost it on the final position there where they couldn't really 
secure the rebound. The Bucks got the offensive rebound, which ultimately ended in a Chris Middleton three. But having said that, the Bulls did get a pretty good opportunity to tie the game there at the end of regulation. Justin Holiday missing the uh, the game tying shot there. He was a two of ten performance tonight, so not his not his best game after having two of his uh, better games of the season. Not a great one from Justin Holiday, unfortunately. But what did you make of that final play that the Bulls sort of drew up for Holiday at the end? It was a, I thought it was a pretty good look. You know, I didn't really get a chance to um, see it closely. I was actually busy like tweeting out the previous play where, uh, yeah, Levine made that layup and then the Bulls gave up, I think, a couple different offensive rebounds. It's unfortunate because on that last one um, where Bledsoe tipped it out that led to the Middleton three-pointer, I, mean, I was watching Zach Levine pretty closely there and Bledsoe beat him out for that ball. Levine really should have boxed him out and that would have prevented that rebound. So it's another example of like, you know, Levine uh, has a pretty good game here, 24 points, but it's just those like small basketball plays that he doesn't have the instincts to make that they end up costing the team like really, really costly error right there. Um, so yeah, why don't you tell me, Mark, what, what you thought of that last holiday three? Uh, did you, was it any specific action that Hoiberg drew up there to get him that look? Well, to me, it was sort of similar to the one that he drew up to get Zach Levine that basket where he tied it up at 113. And what I mean by that, whilst the play wasn't similar in the sense, it was in similar in the way that there wasn't much uh, dribbling involved or no action required at the top of the key where someone had to sort of make a move off the dribble. It was pretty much coming off a play where guys were running to space, catching and shooting almost. So in that sense, I really liked the play because like we sort of talked about before, uh, not calling a timeout at the end of the Spurs game, which I thought was the right decision, by the way. But we saw Levine sort of go ISO heavy there and try to close the game on the step back three. But in this game against the Bucks, against a much better team than the Spurs, the Bulls closed the, the, these uh, the, their final two possessions with players that didn't require them to actually dribble the ball much. So it was a good sort of play where uh, Holiday sort of came off the screen, I believe, and sort of uh, walked into a three. I believe he did sort of have a bit of a shot fake and allowed a guy to go over him to make the shot look a little bit better than what it probably needed to be in terms of the attempt. So I thought it was a pretty good look from what Holiday was able to manage to get up, given the, the fact that he was able to get someone flying over the top of him. But at the same time, it was one of those plays which I like because I'm not necessarily of the opinion that at the end of games, things need to sort of uh, dive down to into ISO sort of plays. It, it just sort of proved that you can run good executed possessions where there doesn't need to be much dribbling at the end of the game to get actually good quality looks. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when Jimmy Butler was on the team... I think this was a game against the Clippers in that three alphas era where Hoiberg drew up a play. Butler was basically a decoy and uh, the play was drawn up for Isaiah Cannon to get a three-pointer that would have won the game. And Cannon missed that shot, but it was a wide open shot. And after the game, Hoiberg got a lot of criticism from fans. I got, got a lot of questions from the beat reporters on like, how could you let Isaiah Cannon take the last shot when you have Jimmy Butler on the roster? But that was absolutely the right right move. I mean, you if you can get a guy a wide open three pointer, you take that any day over a superstar with like a heavily contested shot. I mean, you just have to play the odds at that point. So, I I think that Hoiberg is he he has shown a willingness to do that at times. At other times, he likes playing hero ball. Um, really glad to see that he drew up the game tying play there for Justin Holiday, who's a better shooter statistically than Levine, especially this year. So yeah, that was definitely a good sign. 
It was. So, uh, look, like I said before, there was a lot to like about this game, even though it was a loss for the Bulls, but I thought it was a pretty get, pretty damn good performance. So, I'm happy to take this loss, and I'm not necessarily sure where you stand on the whole tanking versus going for it type approach, but considering all that, um, I thought it was pretty much a good outcome for both parties, really. Yeah, I mean, the last two games, I think, are pretty much, <laughs> if we're being honest here, what Bulls fans are looking for, you know, where the team really competes hard, but loses at the very last second um yeah this draft i'm sure your listeners are very familiar with it i mean there's basically four guys at the top and then it drops off from there so really need the bulls to um finish with as best odds as possible i'm actually writing about this uh, i think for tomorrow but um yeah with like the top four picks in this draft you really need to finish with a bottom five record because the odds are almost equivalent to get a top four pick through those bottom five teams. And then after that, it starts dropping off. I th- I think the Bulls will get there. Um, and yeah, games like this definitely help the cause. Well, let's let's expand on that a little bit further. And it sort of links up, links up to what I wanted to talk about now. So diverting away from the Bucks game and talking about Larry Markin, who is expected to be back in roughly a week or so. So I'm pretty excited about his return. Obviously, most of Bulls Nation is, but... Given what you sort of just outlined there and the fact that the Bulls are probably going to be slated in, well, not, not probably, but potentially could still end up around, you know, a top five pick or somewhere in that nature, or at least that should be the plan. How do you, how do you think marketing's return to the lineup in the next few games will sort of affect that, if at all? Well, you had a great story on Bloggable about how fans shouldn't expect him to come out of the gate just killing it. And... I agree with that sentiment. Uh, it's going to take some time for him to get acclimated, especially with an injury to his shooting arm, that elbow. Uh, so, yeah, I think the Bulls are going to bring him along really slowly. And they they still have a lot of games, though. He's going to play like 50-some games. So, you know, they can they can limit his minutes for the first stretch of that and still get a pretty good season out of him. But uh, as far as, like, if he is going to ruin the tank or anything like that, I mean... I think that fans are kind of scarred from last year where there were nine teams that were fighting. They were all within like a couple of games of each other. That like that never happens that nine teams are tanking in the league and that's not going to happen this year. So I don't think that uh, you need to really freak out that the Bulls are going to win a game here or there because it's just not going to be a crazy competition like it was last year. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a good point. And I, I guess the reason why I wrote what I wrote is because we have a tendency to get a bit excited about when players of, of Larry's sort of stature come back into the rotation. And to be, fi- to be fair, we've all been yearning for his return, given how much bad basketball we sort of had to put up with over the last two months. But I just don't want people to go too crazy in terms of what they expect from the guy. But having said that, I was reading your piece that you had on The Athletic, I think maybe a day or two ago, which I read just before as well about how the Bulls will be utilizing Markin and how he can sort of fit into the whole scheme, particularly with Zach Levine. And whilst I was playing the uh, maybe the pe- pessimistic card, I was actually quite optimistic reading your uh, your piece that you had up on the Athletic and how the Bulls potentially could be using Markin moving forward, particularly with Levine. So I, I I'm not sure exactly how I feel where this sort of team will be going once he is back because I. Maybe I'm a little bit bullish on on the on, on the Bulls at the moment compared to yourself, but I think once Markkinen is back and then once Dunn and Portis come back, I don't necessarily see them as a bottom five team. I mean, I, <laughs> they're still going to be terrible defensively, right? I've, I've read a lot of stuff that kind of overrates 
Markkanen's defense, it seems like. Like, he was supposed to be a really bad defender when he was drafted. And I think that he proved that he was better than people thought he was going to be, especially on the perimeter, moving his feet against guards and switching and stuff like that. But I mean, he's still only 20 years old. He's, I don't think he's like average. He's probably like a little bit below average at this point. And then obviously we know that Portis is really bad as a defender. So, you know, if the Bulls have a bottom 10 defense, I just I don't really think that their offense is going to be suddenly in the top 10 where, you know, they're like a 500 team or anything like that. No, I'm definitely not expecting 500, but I'm I'm not sure if they're going to be necessarily any worse than a team like my the Miami Heat now, who are who are struggling pretty hard. So, I mean, right now the Bulls, without with with all these injuries and the fact that they're relying on a lot of players who probably shouldn't be in a rotation, they're 22nd in defense, which is something I didn't even expect them to be when they're fully healthy. So, in that sense, I think the Bulls actually deserve a bit of credit here for how good they have been on. On, uh, on defense to that regard. And look, obviously, Markin isn't a defensive stop and neither is Bobby Portis, but they've been doing this largely without Chris Dunn. So whilst I'm not expecting the defense to come around and sort of get up into the top 15 or the top half of the league, I think they actually deserve some credit for how they've gone about defending, given that they're not necessarily a good defense right now, but in t- at least in terms of my expectations, I thought they were going to be far worse. Yeah, I thought they were going to be a bottom five defense for sure. I think Jim Boylan's done some really nice things on that end, actually. Like, uh, there was one year where the Bulls finished sixth. I think that was also the three alphas year where they had no business being a top 10 defense, but he was able to do it with smoke and mirrors. And I think he's done that a little bit this year, too. I think it's helped a lot, too, that they've uh, slowed down the pace in a lot of these games. So it's trying to limit. A lot of these transition opportunities, trying to save some of their energy, especially given that they're playing their guys like such heavy minutes. So I think that was like a pretty smart adjustment too. But um, I also think they're going to start playing a lot faster once they get their guys back. So maybe that's going to hurt the defense too. Yeah, that's true. They have slowed down their possession count, I guess, in an, in a, an attempt to sort of stay in this game by, by slowing the game down and junking it up a bit. So maybe that does change once they've got the full squad back. So that's a fair point to raise. But I'm also working on this theory about marketing in the sense that just having him back and, you know, even if you just sort of whack him in the corner there and not necessarily ask for him, a guy that sprained his shooting elbow too much early. But I just wonder if him just being there, just being a presence is going to have more of an effect than him actually going out there and scoring 15 or 20 points a game. And what I mean about that is just the... The, the knock-on effect about having someone like marketing in the rotation and what that flow-on effect is for the rest of the rotation, obviously that'll probably push Jabari Parker to the bench and once Portis is back as well, maybe that means we'll never see Felicio again this season. It might mean that we don't really see Cameron Payne playing anymore once uh, sort of Jabari Parker sort of maybe exper- experimented with at the small forward position again. So I'm just wondering if more so than marketing going out there and scoring buckets himself and you know putting up points for for him his own self. I'm wondering if he's our biggest addition to the team will be the fact that his mere presence will force the rest of the uh, rotation to be bolstered with with some added depth here. I think he will absolutely help space the floor, especially for Levine. I mean the the four five combo that the Bulls are playing right now of Parker and Carter. A lot of times Fred will have them spot up on the three-point line and Carter I think that he can get to be a pretty good three-point shooter eventually but he's struggling right now I mean he's only shooting 23 percent that's actually going to go down because I think he was 0 for 1 in this game and then Parker's shooting 31 percent those guys just aren't drawing 
their men close to them. So when they're on the weak side spotted up, I mean, their their men are just sagging way towards like the paint, just waiting for Levine to drive. So that's not going to happen with Markkinen, right? I mean, you can't give Markkinen any space. His release is so quick. Um, he it's it's high enough where he can get it off at any point, and we know that he's like a pretty good shooter. So he's going to keep at least one defender at home there, and that, that's going to open things up for the rest of the team, as you said. Yeah, and you had it in your story there that the the fact of how the Bulls can sort of utilize Markkinen with Levine and even Wendell Carter Jr. in those pick and pop sort of players. So even if they are losing, it's going to be a fun team to watch once Markkinen is back for those very reasons. So we get to finally see those three guys sort of playing together and then once done gets back to how things sort of shake out but do you have any concerns in terms of how the fit will sort of work between Levine and Markkinen and do you think we should put any stock into the you know the poor three-man combination that we had in Dunn, Markkinen and Levine of last season or is that sort of null and void at this point given that the team was uh, effectively tanking last season? You should have a huge concern about the fit between those two. I think it definitely works on paper and it all comes down to Levine, right? I mean, like his shot selection yeah. last year was so bad. He was missing Markinen. He wasn't even looking at Markinen a lot of times where Markinen was wide open. So there's no evidence that that has changed. Uh, Levine's shot selection has been uh, honestly like pretty bad again this year. Uh, it's been like, I mean, he's been so hot that at times like it hasn't mattered. He's just been hitting everything to start the year, but. Um, I mean, like, I think that it's definitely a mental thing with him. Like if he, if he is willing to, you know, look for Markkinen play off him, then those two can be awesome together. I mean, that pick and pop seriously is just totally unstoppable in theory, but he has to be willing to pass the ball off in those situations. Yeah, definitely. Obviously we don't have much data to support it or against or go against it. So we're sort of just, um, like you said, sort of playing a theoretical game here at the moment, but I guess Levine has been somewhat willing to, or has shown a willingness to dump off the ball to Wendell Carter Jr. in a bit of a two-man game in that pick-and-roll sort of action. So I do have some faith that once Markkinen is back and once uh, Levine sort of sees the ball going through the hole from another player pretty consistently, then maybe he will sort of be more, I guess, uh, I guess interest is not necessarily the right word, but more inclined to sort of get his teammates involved. So that's the hope that I'm sort of clinging on to here. But the last thing that I wanted to talk about with you today is not necessarily something related directly with the Bulls, but it was a trade that was made today by the Utah Jazz and the Cleveland Cavaliers, which sent former Bull Kyle Korver to the Utah Jazz for Alec Burks, who is on an expiring deal. And the the Cavs also got back two second rounders, a 2020 and 2021 picks from the Washington Wizards. So... The reason I bring that up, Stefan, is because the immediate thought that I had once this deal sort of happened between the Jazz and the Cavs is, does this set the market for a potential holiday trade? So a player coming back on an expiring deal in two second rounders, do you think that at all will be able to uh, set the table as to what the Bulls could potentially expect in a Justin Holiday trade, assuming they want to deal him at all? Well... Not really, because the Bulls would never ask for second round picks back, right? <laughs> what would they do with two second rounders? But uh, I mean, like if they wanted second round picks, I think they could get them for holidays. Been like sneaky, really good this year. Um, I I don't think that uh, I, he's shooting like over forty percent. I think coming into this has probably dropped a little bit. Like he's probably closer to thirty seven, thirty eight percent shooter. 
But still, I mean, like he's able to shoot off the move, which is pretty rare. He's an expiring contract, only four point five million. There's a lot of teams that need a three and D wing uh, that are playoff teams. Like I think he'd be awesome on the Pelicans. There are rumors too that they were going to sign him before the Bulls came in with a bigger offer when he was a free agent. He was supposed to go and play with his brother Drew over there. Uh, the Rockets could certainly use him. The Sixers. I mean, they're pretty much like any team, really. I mean, like even. Even like a non-playoff team like, you know, the Lakers or something, they could do some shooting or or the Warriors too. He would be a great fit on the Warriors. So there's there's just such a uh, big market for guys like that. He has no future with the Bulls. I said this when they signed him, like, what is the point of signing Justin Holiday here? Like they didn't even play him last year because he was basically too good to play, but not good enough to get any value back in, in a trade. So hopefully like this year when he's an expiring, I mean, Corver, I think he had like uh this season and next season where he's making seven and a half million. So for holidays on an expiring, I mean, they, they should be able to move him hopefully. Yeah. And holidays eight years younger than Kyle Corver, obviously not necessarily as revered as Corver, who is a uh, genuinely one of the greatest shooters of all time, but obviously a better two way player. So the bulls should be able to get something for Justin holiday. I, I don't subscribe to the theory that they can't necessarily get anything for him. That's assuming they're not asking the world a you know a first round pick or something stupid like that. But there is a deal to be had out there. I'm sure. I'm convinced of that. And whenever you hear, whenever the the, the holiday topic is mentioned, I'm not sure if you get this in your uh, Twitter mentions at all. But I keep getting people sort of suggesting Markel Fultz to me for Justin Holiday and and maybe maybe even Bobby Portis being included in that deal, or if it's not Portis, maybe Cameron Payne, something of that nature, where the Bulls package up two players and in return get back you know, Mark Helfoltz and potentially that second round pick that the, the Sixers own, which is actually the Bulls' 2019 second round pick. So I, I haven't really addressed the whole full thing on this podcast before. and I keep getting asked it. So I thought I may as well just talk about it today with you. But what do you think about that general deal itself or whatever it may eventually shape out to be? But let's just, let's just outline the deal as something including holiday and whatever the uh the additional pieces may be for Fultz coming back to Chicago do you think that's something the Bulls should explore or not or or do you think that's not even worth the risk I was listening to Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue on the Dunked On podcast I think it was last week they had an episode of just like fake Fultz trades they said that the Bulls should probably consider pursuing Fultz just because they don't really have an answer at point guard I mean Chris Dunn you know, he's shown some promise, but it's definitely not someone where, you know, you're pinning your entire future on if he develops or not. So uh, did you did you happen to listen to that episode, Mark? I haven't listened to that episode. No, unfortunately not. So it was pretty interesting. Nate asked some basketball executives what they thought Fultz's value was around the league. And I was pretty shocked to see how low it was. I mean, they basically said that, like, you can get a low-end rotation player back for him or maybe like a second-round pick, and that was about it. Uh, I guess the fact that he makes a lot of money, I think Fultz is making like $9 million and the Sixers exercise his options, so he has money coming into next year too, like that same amount. Um, so I, I, it sounds to me, I mean, based on what these executives said, that uh, basically like you would just need to give the Sixers like some matching salary and a useful player, which... You know, the things you are suggesting, Justin Holiday, who they could really use, you'd have to add some salary to package out with him. Um, 
I think that the Sixers should go for that because they're in contention mode. They really need a rotation player. Like those minutes that Fultz played before he sat out with whatever weird injury he has at this point, like he was really bad on the floor. Like he was hurting them a lot. I think that the fact that they've played a lot better has a lot to do with, you know, he's he's not really playing that much for them anymore. And uh, on the Bulls end, uh, <laughs> he sounds like pretty much the exact guy that the Bulls usually target, right? Like has all this draft hype, uh, hasn't really shown that much promise, but the Bulls feel like maybe they can flip him. And, you know, if you're just giving away Justin Holiday, then yeah, why not just go for it? Like it's it, there's some upside there and they're not going to use Holiday anyway, right? I mean, that's true. It's hard to argue against that fact. But at the same time, I just I, I am concerned about his salary next season. So to to the point you sort of raised before that the Sixers have exercised his team option. So for next season, he will be earning $9.7 million, which is a pretty big salary for a player who, who may not necessarily be anything. And considering that the Bulls already have Cristiano Felicio on the bench next season, adding up to about $8 million or so doing nothing for the Bulls, that that could potentially be $17 million on the bench that's not going to be giving the Bulls much at all. So whilst I understand the sort of logic of taking a, uh, taking a flyer on a risky player like Fultz, I think if his contract wasn't so huge and maybe was at that half that value, so say let's say $4.5, $5 million, I could sort of see it. It would be something similar to what the Bulls have typically done with uh, Michael Carter-Williams or Jerry and Grant or even Cameron Payne. But those guys are sort of taken in the mid to late first round. So those their, their, I guess their contract values weren't necessarily substantial and didn't necessarily impact the cap that much. But given Fultz was a former first round pick not too long ago, his, his uh, salary is quite inflated here. So that's where I really pause on this thing. And uh, I'm just questioning whether the Bulls could do something a little bit better with that, let's just call it $10 million in cap space next season, rather than taking the chance and taking the risk on someone like Fultz who it's probably pretty unlikely that he's going to turn into anything substantial at this point anyway. Yeah, that's the real question, right? Is if the Bulls can do something better with that cap space? I think the answer is no. I mean, I don't know what you think, but like, <laughs> they, you know, they wasted like $3 million on uh, Valentine's option where they weren't confident that they could use that money uh, better. They wasted... I don't even know how much Cameron... I think Cameron Payne's making like $3 million this year, right? I mean, like, they just... <laughs> they they haven't shown any ability to go out in free agency and find someone or to take in bad contracts. They still refuse to take on multi-year contracts. I don't really understand why. So if they're just going to like find the biggest name on the market again, like they did with uh, Jabari Parker, then you know I'd rather just they use 10 million instead of 20 million. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a conversation of what they would do or potentially do versus what they should do. But I'm, I'm thinking of more of what they should do and... I think if they don't necessarily try to go for that home run, try to get that big name like a Jabari Parker and sort of use that cap space towards actually getting some decent role players in next season and sort of surrounding guys like Levine, Mark, and Wendell Carter Jr. and maybe Dunn if he's part of the future with some veterans actually know how to play the game and then the Bulls can sort of go forward with that as their sort of core going forward plus there's the addition of some timely veterans here with that cap space then I'd be on board with that and I think that may be more beneficial than taking a punt on someone like Mark Fultz. But to your point, the Bulls, uh, they, the Bulls typically do a, a cyclical sort of free agency game here where every three to four years they try to pour their cap space into some some of the bigger names. So you're probably more right in terms of what they would do versus uh, maybe what they should do. But 
look, we've gone on, on long enough about the Bulls-Bucks game and all the other things that are sort of concerning the Bulls at the moment in terms of news. But I uh, appreciate you stopping by again on Bulls HQ. Now, before you get away, tell the people where they can follow you online. Yeah, you can follow me at Steph No. Uh, definitely read all my stuff at The Athletic. You know, Mark, when, when you were talking about all these reasons not to go for faults, it just hit me uh, like a like a lightning bolt why you are so against this. And it's it's because <laughs> you would take minutes away from your boy Ryan Archidiakono, and it would it would. would take away cap space that they have to give him for his max contract when he just came out <laughs> averaging twenty this year, right? Well, I mean that's why they're gonna have to get rid of Jabari Parker. They're gonna have to pay uh, Arch the uh, the max pretty soon. So, but I'm pretty sure that uh, a player that models his game or looks exactly like a mini John Paxson, I don't think he would have any troubles of not getting any minutes here in Chicago. So, <laughs> but I think we have to worry about that. That is very true. But yeah, definitely uh, read all my stuff at The Athletic. If you are not a subscriber, it's a tremendous value. I think it's like $4 a month or something like that. So please go ahead and sign up for that. Most certainly. And I'm sure most people are doing that these days. But if you're not, please jump on The Athletic and follow the guys there. Follow Stefan, follow Darnell Mabry covering the Bulls. They do some great stuff up there, as I'm sure most people are aware. But Stefan, like I said a little bit earlier, thanks for coming on, mate, and talking Bulls. And um, we'll do it again in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, folks, so that pretty much does it for this episode of Bulls HQ. Thanks again for Stefan for jumping on the podcast today. Follow him at Stefano on Twitter. Follow the Bulls HQ podcast on Twitter too, at Bulls HQ pod. You can also follow me online too, at MK Hoops. Do all that as well as jumping on iTunes and giving the show a five-star review and subscribing. If you aren't subscribing to the show at the moment, that would really help it out and I would really appreciate it, but uh, obviously no pressure in doing so, but... That's the show for today. We'll be back again next week. So until then, thanks for listening. This has been Bulls HQ and I'll talk to you all again next time. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.